What's going on, everyone? My name's Adam, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our vision here at Sanctus is to become a regional church of 10,000, meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. Come on, let's get ready for what we're about to hear. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us, and welcome formally, of course, to the Easter series. We're starting this brand new series that reflects all upon the cross. And I think we could sort of begin here. If there's one death in history that has had more impact than any other, it's Jesus' death. Whether you're a Christian or not, I think everyone would agree that the death of Jesus is the most talked about, most thought about, most written about, most venerated, most debated, most influential death of any human being ever. I mean, history itself is split around his death. B.C., C.E., B.C., A.D. The reason why we're in 2023 is because of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. And like I just said, it's not Jesus' death alone that's significant. It's also that he physically came back from the dead, what we call the resurrection. Now today, we're starting this new series, and we're doing it to reflect on what did Jesus accomplish when he actually died on that cross? And as we do this together, all of us, again, are going to be confronted with grace. We're we're going to be wooed by love. We're going to see the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of the love of God found most in Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, if you read Matthew or Mark or Luke or John carefully, you'll notice on Good Friday when Jesus is executed, he utters seven last phrases or words. And the second last one is where we need to begin this conversation together. It's found in John 19.30. Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Okay, it is finished. Well, um, what is finished? It would seem that this cry implies something is accomplished, something that was planned out beforehand. Now, what was this? Now, others are like, no, no, there was no plan. This is basically the words of a dying man, and he was the one that was finished. He's done. Well, maybe... But actually, the truth is, this is no death gurgle. This is triumph, triumphant declaration. See, after Jesus rose from the dead, those who walked with him and touched him and ate with him and hugged him and chatted with him and were inspired by him and, of course, his message, they tried to find words and images and ideas to fully express the power and the beauty and the magnitude and the life change and the hope and the kindness of his death and his resurrection. And so they looked around at everyday life, trying to express eternity in our words, trying to quantify the most significant act in history. And so they chose language 2,000 years ago from everyday life. And they chose images from the court of law and from the world of finance and accounting and from the world of business and the world of Jewish religious worship and personal relationships and even the harsh and gritty world of the battlefield. And in these images, you could say these six categories, these ideas, we begin like a stained glass window to see the full picture as all the broken pieces come together. Or you can think about a kaleidoscope. This is what Jesus actually did when he died and came back to life. So today, I want to start with only one image, one shard of glass, one part of the kaleidoscope. I want to hang out today and talk to you about the world of Jewish religious worship. I've done some of this before. Some of you might be familiar. Many of you will not be. 
I want you to think about garbage day. One of my favorite days in the week is garbage day. I love garbage day. I love getting all the garbage out of my house and putting it on the street. I like getting all of my compost organized and all of my recycling organized. And I love putting it on the street. It's out there. Why? Because magically when I return from work, it is all gone. These magic fairies come and they, re they remove all of the stuff I've produced that is bad and it's gone. Out of sight, out of mind. Imagine, though, if one day you or I got a knock on my door or your door and there was a guy standing there and said, by the way, I've collected all the garbage that you have ever produced in your whole life and ushers you outside and in front of you is every piece of garbage, every toilet paper, every diaper, I mean every McDonald's carton, like anything you have been involved in producing, garbage, and then all your recycling and all your compost. And he says, this is all your fault. Look at how much garbage there is here. Can you imagine how overwhelmed you'd feel? <laughs> And, and then the person says, by the way, we're not cleaning it up. This is your problem. And oh, by the way, you need to find a place to deal with it appropriately. And here's the bill for all of your garbage for your whole lifetime. I think we would just be like, I'm done. <laughs> exactly. That is the image of the true human condition before God. And this is why this cross thing matters. See, to understand what the cross is about, to really get it, to understand why this is probably the greatest garbage cleanup moment in history, every single one of us, whether you're a skeptic and you don't believe a word coming out of my mouth, or you're seeking and you're not sure, or you're a brand new Christian or a long-term follower of Jesus, we need to go back, very, very, very far back, to a Jewish holiday called Yom Kippur. It's called the Day of Atonement. Think about it like a, a spiritual spring cleaning. Six months celebrated always after Passover. Now, the word atonement is key for us to understand this whole cross thing. Atonement means to cover something over. It means reparation, amends, compensation. It's a penalty or a payment for a wrong or an injury for loss or damage. So this day is all about reparations. This day is all about paying the price. Now, in one sense, Israel, the Jewish people, did not look forward to the coming of this day. Unlike all the other Jewish holidays, the Day of Atonement isn't sort of festival-based. It's not a party. It's national mourning. It's repentance. This is the only religious holiday which was marked by fasting and repentance and admitting and turning from sin. It's like, <laughs> we'll bring it home, it's like going to the dentist and you have multiple cavities you're not ignoring the problem. You're admitting you have multiple cavities. You're going to face it down. You're going to go get all the needles in your mouth. You're not going to run from it. You're going to fix it. But it's not fun. That's what this is. So one day a year, God would meet his people and all the sin of his people would be dealt with. They'd be atoned for. Now, before we get to what took place, we have to ask, where did this take place? Well, under Moses' leadership, it begins in a place called the tabernacle. It's a large tent. Reads like this in Exodus 41. The Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the month. Now, tabernacle means abide or dwell. This tent, this large tent, was a place where God would dwell in among his own people. And it also is the tent of meeting. This is where Moses would go talk to God like a friend speaks to a friend. So there's encounter in this place and there's conversation in this place. And one of the acts that takes place happens on the Day of Atonement. Now, to understand this, Though a little odd and weird for us today, you need to go to a very old book called Leviticus. 
Leviticus 16. Here's how it reads. The Lord spoke with Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached God. God said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come in whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant or else Aaron will die for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Now, we need to see how serious things are. Aaron's two sons walked into God's very presence, his holy, perfect, all-consuming presence. They had no cover, no support. They had no atonement. And they were struck dead right when they walked in. Now, don't forget, these two sons were part of God's people. These two sons were actually priests that God called into the priesthood. And here's already what we begin to realize. This is important for someone today. If being good or being part of the right ethnic group or being religious or priestly was the ticket to actually get into God's presence, they should have been fine. And now they're dead. See, this is the first thing we begin to understand. God is holy in two senses. He's holy other. That is, he is above creation. He's separate. And also he's holy. He has no sin. And God cannot stand sin. He actually hates sinful activity. Sin can't stand in His presence. So God is such light, such beauty, such perfection that when sin walks in, it basically burns up. I mean, we learned about this in the last series. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. So back to this really sad, foolish tragedy that took place. These two sons are now dead. And God says to Moses, tell Aaron, you just can't walk into your creator's presence anytime you want without covering or help or atonement. You've known this since Eden. Verse 2. So tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come in whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. You're like, John, I'm so confused. Okay, just hold on. Feel the gravity of this. The very physical presence of God himself is found in this place called the Holy of Holies. It's in the back part of the tent. And it's in the form of a cloud. Now, I've taught this many times before. Let me do it again. The name for this cloud is the Shekinah glory of God. This is the dwelling presence of God. God is everywhere, omnipresent. But sometimes he makes himself palpable. He comes close. And we need to get the cloud right in our mind. When I think about clouds... I think about snuggly ads and puffy things and safe things and large cotton balls, right? Wrong. This cloud is full of God's glory and light and lightning and power. And most importantly, it's filled with ongoing fire. You can't fly through this cloud. If you flew through it, it would stop you like concrete. The cloud is literally pulsing with life and fire is flashing out of it. So you've got God's holy, literal, all-consuming presence in this space at the back of this tent, over the Ark of the Covenant. And you're like, where have I heard about that? Well, some of you have seen it in Indiana Jones, that box. So then you've got a high priest. And as we're about to find out, the high priest, that's Aaron at this point, can only enter into this one space once a year, only on the Day of Atonement. So the high priest was the Jewish, the Israelites, divinely appointed representative. He was one of them. Still human, sinful like them, but God had decided to make him their leader in worship. He's their only mediator. He's their only stand-in. And he doesn't just do this for himself or his family. He does it for everyone. So he's going to go on the Day of Atonement and stand before God, the creator of heaven and earth, for everyone. And how would he know this? Well, it's because of what he wears, actually. 
The high priest wore this breast, uh, breastplate made of gold and it was made of like blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen and it was covered in precious stones like emerald and turquoise and amethyst and crystallite. But it's what's on it that matters. Exodus 28, 21. There are to be 12 stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the 12 tribes. So this high priest is wearing this symbol and all the names of God's people the tribes basically, are on his breastplate as he goes and faces God. Now here's how the process begins. It gets weirder and weirder. Verse 7. The high priest is to take two goats and present them before God at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He's to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other lot for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. The goat chosen by Lot as scapegoat shall be presented alive before God to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now, I just want you to remember all this goat stuff, and we're going to get to it in a minute. Now, before Aaron deals with goats, he actually has to do something else first. Before Aaron can face God and literally have represent all of these people before God, he has to deal with his own sin, and his own family, because he's sinful and he's broken. So it says in Leviticus 16, 11, Aaron shall bring a bull for his own sin offering to make an atonement for himself and his household, a reparation, a covering, a payment. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. So the first key step to dealing with the sins of all the Jewish people was to deal with his own stuff. All the priests at this moment in history were his extended family. And if they did not take time to deal with the family sin, how could they or he mediate for all the people? And then if they didn't do it right, then the whole nation suffers because God is holy. So he would be covered first by this first act. And by the way, I'm just going to pause. Some of you have been in church for years and years and years and never understood this. Others of you are like, this is really freaking me out. What's with all this blood stuff? Well, to the Jewish community, and even God himself says, blood is the symbol of life. So here's what you got. When blood is spilled, blood covers death because it's life. Life covers over sin, but it's also a life for a life. It's payment. It's atonement. Okay. So the next step is the high priest is now going to enter into the tent and go to the back of the tent to the Holy of Holies. Now, this is fraught with danger. This is a human being literally walking into God's presence. So it reads in verse 12 like this. He's to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before God and take two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. Okay, so you've got this curtain. Later in the Bible, it's called the veil. Now, this is a physical barrier between God and all people. The veil, which screens the back part, the Holy of Holies, this is like the boundary between heaven and earth. Later, when the tabernacle is replaced by the temple, this veil is much larger. By the time of Jesus, by the way, Jewish liter literature reveals so much about this veil. It's 60 feet long 
It's 30 feet wide. It has the thickness of the palm of your hand. It was made up of 72 unique squares. They were joined together. It was so heavy, it took 300 priests to clean it and then put it up. On it had pictures of angels and the image of the whole universe. Okay, so you've got the high priest coming in. You've got this veil. And then it says he walks behind the veil into God's very presence. And the high priest, here we go, takes this censer full of burning coals and incense from outside, and he walks into the very living presence of God through this curtain, into the Holy of Holies, where this Shekinah glory presence of God is just above the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the very first thing that he needs to do is this, verse 13. The high priest is to put incense on the fire before the Lord and make the smoke of the incense and that will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so he will not die. So even after a sacrifice is made, the guy's still in danger. And the purpose of the smoke is to create another curtain or another veil which would prevent Aaron or any high priest from actually looking directly upon God because he'll die. This is, by the way, where we get our phrase holy smoke from, if you didn't know. This is it. And by the way, this is critical. There always has to be a physical, spiritual barrier between the holy, uncreated God of heaven and earth and human beings, even those who are his representatives, because sin is that serious. Okay, so you've got this priest, and he's past the point of no return. He's now fully immersed in God's presence, literally where heaven touches earth. And the only thing between him and God himself, fire and light and lightning and cloud, is this thin curtain of smoke. And at this moment, this is what he's called to do. Verse 14. He's to take some of the, blood's, uh, the, the blood of the bull and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. He'll sprinkle it with his finger seven times on the atonement cover. So watch this. He passes the curtain. And now he's in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Like I jokingly said, some of you know this from Indiana Jones. The, the, this box or this chest is made from Acadia wood. It's covered in gold. There are angels, two angels on each side. Uh, God's the king of angels, by the way. The, the curtain is filled with pictures of angels. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, this box, has two functions. One, between the angels, there is this middle part, which is called the atonement cover, or it's also called the mercy seat. This space is the throne or the invisible throne of God on earth. You could say this is like where his feet touch, if you want to metaphorically think about it. And this is where the blood is placed or sprinkled to deal with sin, on the mercy seat, the place where mercy is given. It's sprinkled seven times because in the Bible, seven equals perfection. Inside the chest is the Ten Commandments, the agreement between God and his people. So the high priest walks in, he burns this incense, there's this thin, he sprinkles the blood on the throne of God, the place of God, and then he's done. He leaves, he goes outside now to deal with the sin of the whole nation, not just his own sin. And we get back to the goats. Verse 15. So then he shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering, for the people. And he takes its blood behind the curtain to do with it as he did with the bull's blood. And he'll sprinkle it on the atonement cover 
in front of it. So now, this is critical, this other animal is slaughtered for the sins of the whole nation, and the high priest has to go back into that dangerous environment and repeat the whole process again, and now he deals not with his own sin, but the nation's sin. And then it says in verse 16, In this way, the high priest shall make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanliness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. Then it reads like this. No one <laughs> is to be in the tent of meeting from the time that Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out. Having made atonement for himself, notice this, and his own family and the whole community of Israel. So listen to what God says here. The high priest is the only person allowed in. Ready? Catch this. One mediator, one representative, one path for forgiveness, one door, one intercessor, one, eight, one gate, one road, not many roads, not many leaders, one. He stands in the gap for himself. He stands in the gap for his family. He stands in the gap for all of Israel. And then these two last amazing acts take place. It says in verse 18, Then he shall come out to the altar that is before God and make atonement for it. So outside of the tent, but in the same area, is a large altar. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns, the edges of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the Israelites. Okay, so there's this large altar on the outside that's now covered with the blood of bull and goat because both priest and people together make up one group, one family, one community, and ever needs cleaning. This means the people of God together are a holy nation, and this act allows a holy God to live among them, dwell among them, even though they're unholy. And this public act places all human beings at the same level, shows that we all need the same help, shows we need help and forgiveness. And then we come to this last act. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He's to lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and all the rebellion of the Israelites, all of their sins and put them on the goat's head, and she, he shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. So now the high priest places his hands on this live goat and literally passes all the sin of all the people, and they are passed upon, transferred upon, laid upon this animal. And this is where we get our English word scapegoat from. Something or someone, everyone ready, takes the blame, the penalty, the implication, even though they didn't commit the offense, the crime, or the sin. They become the scapegoat. They're innocent, but actually they're made guilty. Now there's more. Did you catch it? There's this job. Someone has the terrible job of walking away with a scapegoat. Can you imagine? Oh, we're so excited that you get this job this year. Here's the leash, and here's the scapegoat. And don't worry, just literally all the sins of all of us and the wrath of God is present on this goat. Just don't look at the goat in the eyes. It's going to be fine. It's going to be great. And just walk the goat. Don't look at it. It's really evil. Just walk it out. And your job is to take it out and make sure it basically wanders out and dies and never returns. What a terrible, terrifying job. Well, it says the goat will carry on itself all the sins 
to a solitary place and the man shall release it in the desert. So the journey, really important as we understand this, ends in a solitary place, a region that is cut off like a deep place, a valley, a cave, a desert. There is no chance to return to the nation. It is cut off and it dies by itself. Now, all of this animal stuff, both groups of animals, the bull and the goats, preserve the Old Testament concept of sin being taken away by another other than the sinner. And only, ready everyone? Only when we get all this stuff, like tents and temples and clouds and blood and curtains and holy smoke and high priests and scapegoats, do you suddenly begin to understand what Jesus was accomplishing on the cross? See, to understand the cross, you have to know the religious history and the worship practices of the Jewish community. Because remember, Jesus is the fulfillment of, the culmination of, the Jewish faith. And Jesus, as we're about to see, is the ultimate expression of all of this. So, question, what was Jesus doing on the cross and after? Well, what we're about to find out is one part of the kaleidoscope is this. Jesus is literally the Day of Atonement for the whole world. How? Ready? One. Jesus is our sacrifice. He's the one that's killed, whose blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat of God to cover our sins. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His blood is spilled, like out of the Exodus story, if you know it, with Moses. He's the Lamb that's killed, and the blood of his life is put over the doorposts of our life, and death now has to what? Pass over. Again, we learned about this in our last series in Romans. Romans 3.25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of Jesus' blood to be received by faith. As one person brilliantly said, the substitute is provided by God himself. The substitute, Jesus Christ, does not cancel the wrath. He absorbs it. He diverts it from us to himself. God's wrath is just. It's spent. It's not withdrawn. Jesus' best friend, John, wrote about this in 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a wrath-absorbing propitiation for our sins. So Jesus is our sacrifice, but oh, there's so much more. Jesus isn't just our sacrifice. Jesus is our perfect and permanent sacrifice. This act does not need to be done year after year, again and again and again. See, the priest... Sprinkled blood seven times to symbolize what? Perfection. Oh, but Jesus actually isn't symbolically perfect. He is perfect. He was perfect. He always is perfect. Jesus has never sinned once. So when he cried out from the cross, it is finished. It really meant, oh man, I've dealt with this. It is finished. That's why the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10.3. But those sacrifices are annual reminders of our sins. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But, verse 10, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Those were just symbols for the real party that was coming. Those were symbols for the real work that was going to be done. Jesus is the perfect permanent sacrifice. It's done. It is finished. It does not need to be repeated again. So Jesus isn't just our sacrifice. He's not just our perfect and permanent sacrifice. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus also is our scapegoat. Jesus took my sin. And Jesus took your sin. Jesus has taken every wicked activity ever done by every every human being that has ever existed. And not only did he have all of our sin placed on him, but like a scapegoat. Have you thought about this? 
on Good Friday, which we'll celebrate in a few weeks, he was led out of Jerusalem, out of the city, out of the people of God, to a rocky place, to a crevice called Golgotha to die. And what's most important is all of our sin was passed to another, placed upon him though he had committed no sin. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 is so profound. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus isn't just our sacrifice. He's our perfect and permanent sacrifice and he's our scapegoat. But oh, there's even more. Jesus has become the permanent incense barrier between us and God the Father. He stands permanently between us and the Father, between us and pure holiness. He covers us. He shields us. He stands in the gap for us. That's why 1 Timothy 2.5, for there's one God. Oh, and there's one mediator, one standing between God and people. That's the man Jesus Christ. So he's our sacrifice, our permanent, perfect sacrifice. He's our scapegoat. He's our permanent incense barrier. But more than that, Jesus also, Jesus' body becomes the curtain we walk through to walk into God's presence without fear. He literally takes over the role of the curtain. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, Christians, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, wow, we've got confidence. Walk right into the presence of God. How? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is Jesus' body. And since we have a great high priest over, over the house of God, let us draw near to God in all of his perfection with a sincere heart, full of assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Wow. So not only has Jesus fulfilled all of that, did you catch it? Here's the next thing Jesus does. Jesus also is our high priest. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have a high priest who has been tempted in every single way like us, just as we are. Oh, but the difference, Jesus never sinned. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Anyone in need? Anyone got trouble in their life? I do. Approach them with confidence. See, Jesus allows us to come into God's presence. He allows us to come in without fear because he's the one that mediates. He's the one that prays. He's the one that stands in. He's the one that covers. He's our worship leader. He's our only intercessor. He's our divinely appointed representative. And oh, amazing, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He's still our brother. Though he's fully human like us, he's also beyond us because he's fully God. And that's the connection, by the way, between Christmas and Easter. And we don't need to fear death and we don't need to worry about God's presence because Jesus has taken care of everything. You'll never understand this part of the kaleidoscope, this incredible act of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, unless you know Jewish thought, theology, history, worship well. So as we're doing a whole series on what did Jesus accomplish on the cross, as we're now in the Lent Lent season, as we're preparing for Good Friday and Palm Saturday, Sunday, Easter, as, as we are thinking all of this, thinking through all of this, God is already speaking. I mean, let me put it like this. I don't know if you've thought about it, no matter where you are or how you classify yourself spiritually. 
every one of us is like Aaron, in the sense at the end of time, every single one of us is going to face God, face to face with God in all of his holiness. The question is, for many of you, is will you be fully covered when you meet God or not covered at all? See, the question, maybe let me put it like this. Are you at the end of time going to be like Aaron or like Aaron's sons? See, this is how this is going to go down. Jesus talked about it, Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and all the angels with him, he's going to sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations are going to be gathered before him and he's going to separate all people, one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Okay, think about that image of garbage again, right? Think about all that garbage, all that recycling, all that compost. That's our sin. God knows everything we've produced that's wrong. And we have to give an account. That's why we need atonement. That's why we need payment. That's why we need covering. That's why we need someone to step in and clean up the garbage and the mess, because actually the mess and the garbage is overwhelming and is too big, and we can't save ourselves, and we don't have it within us. We need a savior. We need a high priest. We need a sacrifice. We need a scapegoat. We need a permanent incense barrier. We need a curtain so we can recover what we lost in Eden so long ago. And that's, by the way, why Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. Some of you are offended by his exclusive claims, but you should understand it now, because he's the only person that's done all of this. That's why he said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes into God's presence. No one comes to God the Father except through me. Why? Because I've done all this. Muhammad didn't do all this. Buddha didn't do all of this. The founder of Zoroastrianism or the many leaders that founded Sikhism or Hinduism or just keep filling or philosophical, they didn't do all of this. Only one person's done this. His name is Jesus. The wages of sin is death. Oh, but the gift of God is eternal life in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Some of you, as I'm literally preaching, you're realizing that you have no covering. The garbage pile is still present. And this is the moment where God the Father and the Son and, and the Spirit, one true living, loves you so much. He, he sent his Son in the world to not condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And this is where you need to humble yourself. This is where you need to sort of bow down a little bit and actually say, I actually need the work of Jesus in my life right now. You might be very moral. You might be profoundly religious. You might be spiritual or none of the above. You might have a very dark and violent history or maybe you're just a nice person that thought you were going to get by. No matter who you are, I want to give you an opportunity right now. This is what you pray to have all of this incredible work happen in your life. You say, dear God, you pray this. Say, dear God, I admit I'm a sinner. The garbage pile is too high. The bill is too costly. I'm going to die. And when I face you, I'll die forever if I don't have someone step in. So God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, be my savior. Be my high priest. Sacrifice. Scapegoat. Permanent incense barrier, curtain. So when I can know God the Father and you as friend. Make me clean. I, I accept your death on the cross. I believe you physically rose from the dead. I, I want to live with you now and forever. Grant me eternal life. Give me all of this atonement. This is what I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you did that, 
all of that incredible garbage pile is gone right now. And all that incredible work is now given to you. For we who have already experienced the great garbage removal, and we keep experiencing it, as we're in this Lenten season, as we're preparing for Holy Week, the thing that I think we should just come back to is gratitude. Grace, grace, grace again. We as Christians, I don't know if you've thought about this, we don't need to fear the journey towards death or death itself because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. I don't think most of us, especially we who have church history, really have ever thought about fearing God fully or dying if we showed up in his presence without covering. We actually presume grace. We presume forgiveness. Imagine if Jesus hadn't stepped in and we faced God without his help. Most of us have never thought that we don't need to fear when we pray to God or face God because Jesus is already in the room. We, we have confidence. We get to draw near. We're no longer guilty. He meets us in our time of need. And when we die and when we face God in the fullest expression of his presence, it's going to be joy for us. And it's going to be love and healing. It's not death. It's not going to be because of the work of Jesus. So as you're in the middle of, you know, doing devotions or on Lent, as you're preparing maybe for Palm Saturday, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, I just want to say to you, um, let your heart be warmed, maybe. Maybe it's been lukewarm and cold, warmed heart again. Maybe just move to say a real thank you today. Maybe you should be moved a little bit to tears, or maybe if it's not what you usually do, maybe you do need to raise a hand and say thank you or cover your face or kneel or shout out loud, thank you, God, or maybe silently sit and say thank you, thank you, thank you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Yeah, like me. Lord, as we formally enter into this holy season with our church and the global church, I pray that the true incredible work of Jesus on the cross would become more clear, more life-changing, more, more hope-giving for we who know and for many who are listening to me right now who do not know, open their eyes and move them to the place of encounter, faith, salvation, hope, resurrection. Yeah, I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There, you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that subscribe button to be notified when another episode releases. Take care, and we'll talk soon. Thank you.